You're listening to What Does the Word Say, a series of podcasts on biblical theology produced by Grace and Glory Media. My name is Mark Roby, and I'm your host for this series. Our teacher is Dr. Richard Spencer. Today's podcast is again a special session. It's the second part of an interview with Professor Henry Schaefer III. Professor Schaefer received his Bachelor of Science degree in chemical physics from MIT and his Ph.D. in the same area from Stanford University. He is currently the Graham Purdue Professor of Chemistry and the Director of the Center for Computational Quantum Chemistry at the University of Georgia. He is also one of the world's most highly accomplished and regarded physical chemists. He has over 1,600 publications and it has been reported that he has been nominated for a Nobel Prize five times. He has won so many awards and has given so many talks all over the world that it would be silly to even begin to list them. But the most important thing about Professor Schaefer is that he is a Bible-believing Christian and unashamedly speaks of Christ wherever he goes. Before we begin, I'd like to point out that Dr. Schaefer has written an excellent book called Science and Christianity, conflict or coherence, which is in its second edition. Dr. Spencer was able to interview Professor Schaefer on Wednesday afternoon, October the 3rd, 2018, prior to Schaefer giving his lecture at the University of California in Davis. This is Dr. Spencer, and I'm here with Professor Henry Schaefer, and I welcome our listeners back for the second half of our interview. Professor Schaefer, have you had any particular discoveries or observations in your career that uh, really bolstered your faith as a Christian? Yeah, um, just one. Um, We have been interested in the structures and properties of small molecules for a long time. Uh, Going back to the work on CH2, the methylene molecule, that made me a household word in a small number of households. (laughs) Uh, But one of the most exciting molecules is SI2. Uh, H2, which is a molecule which is similar in many ways to acetylene, which is a is a linear molecule structure, HCCH, all in a line, and uh, we sh- were able to show that uh, that Si2H2, the the silicon anal- analogy of uh, of acetylene, um, has many different structures, some of which are truly unique, and that was uh, an aha moment, and it was, of course, very satisfying when experiment came back five or six years later and showed that all of our predictions from quantum mechanics were true. Oh, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, that was uh, very gratifying. So it shows Schrodinger's equation was right. Uh, Schrodinger was right, yeah. <laughs> all righty. I have a question that's sort of related to science, but not really directly, really, in a sense, and that is, do you think that science is an objective discipline at the end of the day? I mean, clearly individual scientists are not objective fully. They're observers and they bring their own worldview to the work that they're doing, so it affects the way they see the evidence and it affects the questions they might ask and so forth. But what about science collectively, when you think about the way it works with people trying to work, do, build on what other people have done and so forth? Do you think that as a whole it's it's an objective discipline? Well, uh, scientists have many failures. Um, this is indisputable. The hope is that as time goes by, these failures will be corrected and we'll get on a more clear path toward uh, toward the truth. Um, sometimes this takes a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes this, this takes a long time. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, we hope science is self-correcting. Um, 
I think that in the broadest sense is true, but it sure takes a long time to get corrected sometimes. <laughs> That's certainly true. Now, you've been teaching a course at the University of Georgia on science and Christianity, a freshman seminar kind of class. What do you find to be the most common misconception young people have about Christianity? It's that science has disproved God. All right. Have they said why they think science has disproved God, or is this just a general idea that they have floating in their head? Uh, we're, about, we're about halfway through the semester now, and I asked the students on the first day of class, uh, how, many, how many have heard somebody say that uh, science has disproved God? They all raised their hands. All 17 students, they all raise their hands. Interesting. So it's out there. But then can they explain that at all if you ask them um, how or why? Some teacher told me so. Um, my parents told me so. Um, I, I heard of a famous scientist who said this. Yeah. That's the kind of answers you get. All right, that's pretty amazing. Most of them don't buy it, just for the record. Okay. They've heard it, but they don't buy it. Well, that's encouraging. It is encouraging. And we know from Romans 1 that they're suppressing the truth anyway, so... Yes. I have another question that's uh, really off-base, but it is scientific in a sense. What do you think of the strong view of artificial intelligence? I don't know if you've read the book from the 80s, Gertel Escher-Bach by Douglas Hofstadter or not, but the whole idea that if computers get sufficiently complicated and the software gets sufficiently sophisticated with enough layers of self-referential ability and everything that it will develop all of the characteristics of intelligent beings like you and me? Yeah, a person in my field, Christopher Lungett Higgins, um, went from quantum mechanics to artificial intelligence, and he made this most remarkable statement that artificial intelligence will never um, account for natural stupidity. <laughs> There's nothing in artificial intelligence that hasn't been programmed by some human being. Yeah. So it can only do what we, we tell it to do. So I, I'm not frightened by artificial intelligence. Um, uh, you know, we, I mean, my whole life is using computers to solve equations. Mm -hmm. So, no, I don't see that coming. I mean, artificial intelligence is okay. I mean, we find patterns. This is what artificial intelligence is all about. We, we find patterns in nature. And, uh, and sometimes, you know, using the computer, they make sense a lot faster than just looking at, you know, if we could, billions and billions and billions of pieces of data. Mm -hmm. So it's useful, but uh, it only does what it's been told. Yeah, that's true. Do you have any thoughts or comments you'd like to share about the current climate on college campuses with regard to free speech, for example? You give talks all over the world about faith, and you were telling me a little bit earlier about some troubles you had years ago in India with a talk. So what do you think about the current climate and what needs to be done there? Or um, It varies from campus to campus. You know, at my campus at the University of Georgia, I think it's true that most anything goes. Most anything um, can be said. That doesn't mean that you won't run into a lot of uh, a lot of um, controversy. Um, there's a certain number of our students, and it's a small minority who uh, who don't mind being. Um, how shall I say this? Uh, violent. Mm -hmm. And this is sad when you see this at my university or any other. And um, yeah, one one hopes that that 
universities would take a strong stand against this. The University of Chicago has taken a very strong stand against this. There are no safe spaces at the University of Chicago. If you don't want to be challenged in your ideas, please don't come. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wish more of our uni- prominent universities would make statements like that. Mm-hmm. I agree. What do you think about the changes that have occurred over the last, well, even 150 years in the definition of science? I mean, 150 years ago, theology was considered the queen of the sciences. And for most of the last 150 years, the definition of science, if you look in old dictionaries, has something to do with with some sort of a systematic way of looking for knowledge. Um, But in the past 50 years, a lot of prominent organizations for science education and so forth, I think in response to us learning a whole lot more about the nature of life and the complexity of life, have started to argue that the definition of science should include a limitation that you're looking for a natural uh, cause for all events or all things. What do you think about it? That seems to me to be damaging to the very core of science. I I don't agree with that. I think we need to follow the evidence wherever it leads. Um, And uh, sometimes it leads in the direction of a sovereign God of the universe. Okay. If you exclude that, your worldview is going to be incomplete, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. The Big Bang Theory and the massive evidence that has been gathered in support of it has convinced most scientists that this universe had a beginning, and it also supports the creation narrative in the Bible. Is there any specific finding in your field that you think points to the existence of God in a similarly compelling way? Chemists are very impressed by the beauty of their molecules. Um, not all molecules have gorgeous symmetry, but many do, and... Uh, in, even I would say that in some cases, new discoveries of molecular structures like C60, Buckyball, okay. Westminster, uh, Buckminster Fullerene, uh, when a lot of people saw that for the first time, it kind of took their breath away. Um, so, you know, something of that beauty uh, and that was never known in, uh, when does chemistry begin? Robert Boyle in, uh, wow, more than... Uh, yeah, 500 years. And to see that somebody's made it, they can put it in a bottle, you know, you can you can uh, scratch it, you can rub it, you can't eat it. Uh, but uh, for, for, for many chemists, I think that was an, an inspiring uh, experience. And it just naturally raises the question, how many other things like this are out there that we don't have a clue about? And that, I think, provides some motivation for people to try to keep making new things and understanding the things we already have. Well, mentioning Boyle is interesting, too, because I've read a biography of him and talk about an amazing Christian. I mean, the man taught himself biblical Hebrew and Greek, and if I remember right, I think even Aramaic, so that he could read the entire Bible in the original languages. Yeah, he was what we now call a polymath. Yeah. Um, it's harder to be a polymath these days because there's an awful lot of awful lot of knowledge out there to uh, to uh, absorb. So I, I don't know if we're ever going to have another polymath. There's just too much, um, the range of things from uh, high energy physics to um, uh, molecular biology is, is so huge that uh, it, it's really pretty hard to know everything. Even in my own field of quantum chemistry, you know, things have changed so much. I used to read all the journals and uh, I would say I'm I have to depend a lot more on my students to tell me what's important going. I, there are still some really good ones that I read pretty much cover to cover, but uh, 
for the others, I, I depend on others to tell me what's, what's really exciting out there. Now, you worked with uh, Professor Philip Johnson at UC Berkeley, and he's considered by many to be the father of the intelligent design movement. Uh, what do you think about uh, intelligent design? Yeah, well, intelligent design. I mean, I know most of these people. Quite a few of them are my friends. Philip Johnson, um, law professor at Berkeley, really got this whole thing started with his book, Darwin on Trial. And uh, Phil didn't know too much science, but he he sensed in his own mind that the evolutionary picture was, um, was not satisfying. And he recruited a whole bunch of very bright younger people to take up the cause, like Mike Behe, Bill Dembski, uh, Steve Meyer. So uh, all these people are my friends. I'm not exactly on their on their team. I agree with them about a lot of things, but to me, uh, much more important than uh, the idea of an intelligent designer is who is the intelligent designer. For to me, it's more important to know that Jesus Christ is the designer of our universe. He's the one who crafted the whole thing uh, than the brute fact that there was a designer. So we're a bit in disagreement on these things, but I respect what they have to say. I read their stuff. I enjoy it. It's, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I think they've, I think they've, they've, um, they've created a discussion about these things, which I think is wholesome, mm-hmm. whether they're exactly right about it or not. I think that yeah. they've done a service to science. Well, I think, you know, Cornelius Van Til, with his presuppositional apologetics, would say that the place for evidential apologetics like that is in making an unbeliever be uncomfortable mm-hmm. in their worldview. <laughs> and so I, I assume you've read Signature in the Cell by Stephen Meyer. and I've, I haven't read the whole thing. Yeah, and you know you go through those numbers and you look at, if I remember the numbers correctly, you you know the minimum complexity cell that biologists think would be viable would have 250 proteins or something. And if you assume those are typically 150 amino acids long, and you say, how likely is it to get 150 or 250 proteins of that length by random combinations of amino acids. And you come up with a number like 1 in 10 to the 41,000th power or something, which is completely absurd, obviously, at some level. I think Steve Meyer has become the leader of the uh, intelligent design uh, movement. He's a very, very uh, bright guy. And um, it's it's interesting to uh, read his stuff. I mean, these guys are Dembski, Behe, uh, Meyer. They're brave. I mean... They've got almost the entire biological community up in arms against them. So they, they've taken a lot of hits. I think often, though, and I think I've read something of yours where you would agree with this statement, that uh, the reason unbelievers are sometimes hostile is because they know, in fact, God exists, as Romans 1 says. And so really underneath their hostility is, is not a hostility toward you or what you're saying so much as it is a hostility toward a God that they know someday is going to judge them. Yeah, that is sometimes true. Yeah, that uh, definitely sometimes true. Yes, it is. And uh, I, I think with that, we're out of time for the day. So I'd like to remind our listeners that they can email their questions or comments to info at whatdoesthewordsay.org. And we would appreciate hearing from you. You've been listening to What Does the Word Say? Brought to you by Grace and Glory Media. And I'm Mark Roby. In our next session, we will return to our series examining God's attributes. We hope you'll join us. 
The session you heard today is available, along with all other sessions, in the archive on our website at whatdoesthewordsay.org. We also have a free book available to you entitled Good News for All People, written by Rev. P.G. Matthew, founder and senior minister of Grace Valley Christian Center. To request your free copy of this excellent summary of the biblical message of salvation, go to whatdoesthewordsay.org.